what I want to talk about in our halacha share this week. Yana de Yema. Halachas of vacation. Halachas of holidays. What halachas could they be? So I'll tell you a real shayla which came up before Shabbos. Someone who decided that he wanted to go on a vacation to Italy. Somewhere off the beaten track, a place where, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't a Jewish community. And uh, he told me before we left that he was intending to take with peanut butter cans of tuna fish. And uh, he was traveling out on Monday, he wanted to be back Thursday night, to be back in time for Shabbos. But I'm not sure whether it's due to corona regulations or just a change in the flight schedules. His plane was cancelled and uh, therefore he found himself having to spend Shabbos in some small Italian town. And uh, maybe during the week a person can get by with tuna fish and crackers or peanut butter, but uh, that doesn't work for Shabbos. So he wanted to know what can he do to prepare for Shabbos as far as cashless goes. These things happen unexpectedly often. So let's talk about the halachas of cashless in exotic locations. Specifically, what's practical, what's nagar to the halachas of what one needs for Shabbos. Okay, so the first point, obviously, in Shabbos is what's a person going to do about making Kiddush and Havdalah. Because to buy wine or grape juice without a hechshis for sure, also it has a din of stam yenum. The available wines and grape juices in most places, especially in Europe, are not going to be kosher. So it doesn't have the option of finding a kosher brand in the local supermarket. And Nalacha tells us that in a place where a person doesn't have wine to make Kiddush, so the next option is to use what's called Khamar Medina, the beverage of the country. Now in some countries it's unclear what the national beverage is going to be. It's also a question what does Khamar Medina mean? Does Khamar Medina mean the commonly drunk beverage? What does Chama Medina mean, so to speak, the beverage which replaces wine as a something of chashivus, or something of importance. And therefore, it wasn't, wasn't necessarily what sells the most or what's most commonly drunk, but when a person wants to honor, so to speak, a visitor, what would he put on the table? Another rule to bear in mind is that Chama Medina can't be water. Even if a it's a healthy country where most people do drink water, or even if it's a khashiva water, some kind of mineral or bottled water at source, khamam then has to be something not water, and therefore we're looking for a different drink. So like I said, in different parts of the world, there's a question, Ramosha Feinstein discussed orange juice in America as being a possible khamam When it comes to Europe, however, it seems traditionally the khamam in Europe has been beer, it's called sheikhar, and it's been like that for many years, because already the folks can talk about the idea of Sheikhar being Khamer Medina, maybe it still is the most commonly drunk drink in Europe, I'm not sure. 
Yeah. We definitely have a lot of postmen to rely on that Chama Medina in Europe at least a person can be able to with beer. However, that brings us to the next question. And that is even if beer is readily available, is beer kosher? So here we have help from an unlikely source. And that is what we call natural beer or pure beer or whatever other name it might have. But uh, there was a law enacted in Germany, Bavaria, about 800 years ago. It's called the Bavarian Beer Law. And that uh, is one of the few laws maybe we still have in the Middle Ages. And that is that they're only allowed to have four ingredients in beer, and that is either barley, hops, water, I don't know what the last one is, but it was also something kosher. And they weren't allowed to add any other ingredients into beer. You know, the Germans took their beer very seriously, and they passed this chayk uh, yavor that these are the only ingredients a person is allowed to have in beer. And therefore, any beer today which is subject to, so to speak, the rules of the Bavarian beer law, will be kosher. Most of the major brands of beer are. The only question is going to be uh, microbreweries or flavored beers or other things which other ingredients might have been added and therefore the beer shayla of whether that would make it also. If a person buys any major brand beer which is abiding by the Bavarian beer law, it will be kosher. So a person can be yet a kiddish and but also have zara in the case where there's no wine, but being yet with Chaman Medina, and we have in Europe we can use beer for that. Many people ask the question, what about Coca-Cola? Is that something which a person could be yet to, uh, as Chaman Medina? And the reason is because that's also readily available around the world, and it's something which probably does need a hechshin. It's uh, considered to be kosher. And the answer is that the person will say no, because Coke is really just flavored water. As opposed to beer, where the there's been a process of change in the water. It's not just flavored, but the fact that it's fermented has become a new drink. So that makes it something of different chashivas, whereas water, which is just a flavor added to it, is still called water, albeit water with a flavor, but that doesn't help us, because as we said previously, water doesn't count as a chamamadin. Okay, so that's, a, that's the first hurdle, so to speak. How to deal with Kiddush. Next question is, what to do about Lechem what to do about Lechem Mishnah? Now, let me explain something. Even though there's a din that one's allowed to use pas akum, bread baked by a non-Jew, in a place where there isn't bread of a Jew, the understanding is that that only helps us regarding the gzera the Chazal made, and not to use bread baked by a non-Jew. However, if there would be a cashless issue, be a cashless issue with the bread, then it won't help you. And therefore, it's only if we know that the ingredients in bread are all kosher and the ovens being baked in are all kosher. Our only problem is that the one doing the baking was a non-Jew. Then we would say this is got the din of pasakum. And in the cases of necessity, when there isn't kosher bread, a person would be allowed to use pas, uh, we call pas palta, the, the bread of a goyish baker. In the case where we don't know the status of the ingredients of the oven, so then it becomes a regular shade of kashras, and of course there's no leniency, it's just because there isn't an alternative. So if a person's in a place where the bread is being produced by 
big government companies, which all they're producing, doing is producing bread. They may be the heta of Pas Akum. It's a little bit more complicated today because maybe bread once upon a time was just flour, water, and yeast, and those are all pretty much kosher ingredients. And then there would be a real possibility of Pas Akum, which would apply today, by the way, to the way they make pizza bread in a lot of places, which is a kosher ingredient. But the average loaf of bread that the bakeries produce, even kosher, have many more ingredients than that. I remember once speaking to the Bedat Meshkech of Angel's Bakery here in Yerushalayim, which is, is a kosher bakery, it's under the Bedat. And uh, when he was trying to explain the complexity of bread production today, he asked how many ingredients do you think go into the average loaf of sliced bread? Which people guess three, four, five maybe? And he claims that the other 80 ingredients in an average loaf of bread, once they've added uh, the various preservatives and stabilizers and emulsifiers and flavorants and taste enhancers and all the other kinds of things that they put into bread. So we're talking about many more ingredients which obviously need to be kosher as well. And therefore if a person knows that the bread they have, the only ingredients are kosher ingredients, then there's a hat of a pasakum. But in a case where that's not so, or in a place where there isn't, let's say, major government companies or let's say factories just who just produce bread, we're talking about bakeries. And the bakeries, besides producing bread, is also producing other kinds of uh, foods. And they're using the same mixing bowls and the same ovens and the same equipment for everything. So then it becomes a much bigger cashless problem because they could be making meat pies in the oven. They could be making cheesecakes in the same containers. We don't know what they're doing. And if that's the case, even if, let's say, a factory making bread may have a heads of pasakum, but definitely going to a non-Jewish bakery, which isn't specifically made using bread, it's using other things as well, would definitely need a heksha because it's very likely that it's not just a shadow of pasakum, it's a real shadow of trade. Similarly, what they call artisan breads of various kinds, also, we have no idea what other things are being added to the bread, and then there are also those things will need a hashkacha. So coming back to the question, this individual was in a place where he claimed that the only bread was from the local bakery. So I told him you definitely can't buy bread from the bakery because who knows what else the bakery is producing when the same ovens on the same cadim. And therefore, the eight so we found was in a case where there isn't bread, there's also a hetter to use for Echamishna, Pasababakisnin, which means something which is even right now it's brach, it's mizainus. But if one would eat sufficient quantity of it, one would have to make a hamoiti. And if that's the case, a person can be into lecha mishnah by having a full, so to speak, item, which a person will eat enough to make a hamoiti on, and he can use a lecha mishnah like that. And if that's the case, our best next bet is to go to some kind of health cracker or vegan cracker, where, once again, it's a factory-produced item, and we don't have to be worried, therefore, about other things being used on the same production and oven at the same time because normally a factory has a specific run for its crackers. So any kind of uh, vegan cracker which the ingredients are all kosher it would be a better bet. A whole cracker is considered like a lechem and therefore when having two of those the person could make lechem mishnah. We would have to eat enough to what you call a sphere so he could mention it but he could be able to lechem mishnah like that. Um, just in the circumstances I don't think a person would have a problem eating this of crackers because as we're going to see, there aren't many other alternatives what he can eat. Like I said, deals with hamoiti, 
and that deals with Nechem Mishnah. Now, when it comes to obviously things like meat and chicken, there's no way in the world there's, uh, there's nothing to do. If there's a need a hechsha, and without that, one just has to go with that. The question is, what about fish? What about fish? Um, so the halacha is, as far as fish goes, as long as the person can see the scales, the fish is kosher, which is a good start because uh, most fish are kosher, they have scales. But uh, the, uh, the main issue with fish comes is how they're going to buy their fish. In other words, it's true that the, the, the fish fresh out of the ocean with its scales is a kosher fish, one can take a bite and eat it. But normally people aren't adept at skinning or cleaning out or whatever it is, filleting their own fish. And therefore this is obviously done by, by whichever fishmonger or worker it is that's preparing the fish for you. And here we are into a problem because the question once again is regarding the knife. Now even though the fish is cold and therefore nothing's going to get absorbed from the flavor of the knife, but there's a din of dochka which means something a person uses pressure for, wherever is in the surface of the knife is going to get pushed into what he's cutting. So for example if I have a cold knife and I'm cutting something, then whatever's in, any shamlunis or fat or grease on the side of the knife is going to now line, so to speak, whatever I use the to cut the knife with. And therefore, if they're using their, their knife to skin or debone whatever my fish, so they don't have to worry that what they used the knife for before left a layer of grease or residue on the surface of the knife. And now that's going to be on top of my fish. And therefore, if it's the same store where they're cutting up fish for me, they'd previously been cutting up a crab or an octopus or who knows what for a different customer, maybe there'd still be the shamlunis of Isra on the knife. Shamlunis is not enough to wash it. The Gemara says one needs neitza, which means one needs to push it in and out of an, the earth ten times, which basically means something which is going to wrap the surfaces very well and remove any residual fat. Water is not going to do that, and therefore unless they're willing to give me their knife to scrub well, and steel wool, something like that, before they cut my fish for me, I'm better off either buying a, a whole untouched fish if I want to deal with it myself, and being as most people don't, the next, the next option is to buy myself a knife to buy myself a knife and then ask them, having chosen my fresh fish, to use my knife to clean the fish with. It's true they might be using it on their surfaces, but that's not as important. The Chaya Chacham Sodom already writes that the Dukhka from the surface will be ever his bottom. Um, just one thing to bear in mind is that if you are going to buy yourself a knife, so you're going to have to find a case to be table it, because like any clean one buys from a guy, it needs to be less kalim. This, in some places in the world, might present a challenge because probably there aren't kalim mikvahs everywhere. But in this particular case in Italy, where there's no lack of rivers, so that any river, natural river, works in the Kaili Mikvah too, the person can just uh, dip or immerse his knife in the river, and that works for Tura's Kaili. And then afterwards, he can use it to cut his fish, and this might be a worthwhile thing having anyway, because it might be thing, something useful he, he would uh, need for the rest of Shabbos. Okay, so that's as far as fish go. The fish would be an option, like once again it has to have scales and it has to make sure that it's been cut by a knife which doesn't have a shamlunis of Isra on it. He asked me about buying eggs. Chicken eggs are kosher anywhere in the world. The only chashashas could be that it's from some some other non-kosher bird. There isn't really an industry in non-kosher bird eggs, but if when, for that kind of thing one's allowed to believe the packaging. If they're right, it's chicken eggs, then a person's allowed to Around the fact that it's chicken eggs, the question might just be, and that is if they're free-range eggs or organic eggs as opposed to battery eggs, 
there's more of a chance of them having blood spots. So I'll first want to check the eggs, like, which is always a din. And if the eggs are clean, then the eggs are kosher. Fruit and vegetables. In Chutzlar, it's much easier to deal with in Eretz Yisrael. There aren't any halachic problems with fruit and vegetables in Chutzlar. One doesn't have to worry about Shemitah, one doesn't have to worry about Shemitah and Maestras. One doesn't even have to worry about Arla, because the rule is that Suffolk Arla with Chutzlar is Muta. And therefore, unless one knows that there's a problem of Arla, one's allowed to assume that there isn't, and a person's allowed to buy fruit and vegetables without a Heksha. The only two things to bear in mind are, number one, don't buy Israeli produce. Because then you will have all the questions of the halachas of Eretz Israel. And not only that, you'll have more questions than you would have in Eretz Israel. Because very often, the fruit or vegetables which has a halachic problem, and therefore the cashless organizations in Eretz Israel are going to stop them selling it here. So the, so to speak, the farmers or the distributors of fruit and vegetables find an easy aid of sending it overseas where no one's going to interfere with them and anyway most of the potential so to speak consumers are going to be going and therefore in those fruits where there is a chashash of arla there'll be more of a chashash in Israel because it's more likely the arla crop will get exported because luckily the rabbinot want them to sell it the same goes for shvis or other things like that that there might, that there might be a bigger halakhic issue with buying Israeli produce in Chutzlaris and there isn't buying it in Eretz Israel. But uh, being as the EU laws that they have to label which co- the country of origin for all the fruit and vegetables that they're selling, so it makes it very easy for us as a commercial consumer. Just make sure that the country it's coming from is not Eretz Israel and then there's no halakhic problem with fruit and vegetables. That's the first point. The second point, and that is as far as infestation of insects, the loam goes. So this doesn't make a difference where you are in the world. And those fruit and vegetables which are likely to be infested are likely to be infested in Chutzlaritz as well. And therefore they'll need to be checked there as well. That doesn't render it non-kosher. It just means it needs checking. So the same green leafy vegetables which are, might have aphids or fruit flies in Eretz Yisrael and we'll have to worry about them in Chutzlaritz too. The same fruits which are highly infested as in strawberries or other berries in Eretz Yisrael are likely to be infested there as well. A person just needs to check. The person just needs to check, and uh, the same way you check here, we check there, and if they actually are clean, then it would be okay to use. Right, as far as uh, non-fresh fruit and vegetables go, let's say factory-produced things, so again, when things have had added flavors, one has to worry what the flavors are, but anything which doesn't have added flavors, natural tea, natural coffee, natural salt, natural sugar, natural oil, all these things are kosher even without a heksha. Firstly, because as ingredients, there's nothing non-kosher about them. And secondly, because we don't have to worry that there were non-kosher ingredients made in the same factory or on the same line, because all of these are big enough factories that they have dedicated lines for this product. So we don't have to worry about other things being made in the line of the sugar or the salt or the tea or the coffee or things like that, because there's a big enough production of just that one, one item to warrant even a whole factory for it. And therefore, these things can be bought without a problem. Obviously, if a person wants to have hot beer on Shabbos, which is a maila, so the person's going to have to have some kind of pan or pot or whatever it's going to be to keep the food hot in. And then, once again, he's already going to the mikvah, meaning the natural river, to table the knife he's buying. He has to table these things too. Right. As regarding other factory products, which aren't one-ingredient products, things such as mixers or powders, or anything like that, these things need to have a heksha, because here it is likely that within the mixture there might be some ingredients which are not kosher, 
and one can't assume that if it's not written on the ingredients, that's all okay. And the reason for that is, is because, as far as I understood from the Mashkif who work in this, by law, something which is less than a certain amount, I think it's 2%, does need to be written on the product list. It can be just written as added flavors of ingredients. Uh, does it be specified by name? Whereas kashras depends on 1 in 60, which is less than 2%, and therefore there may be non-kosher ingredients, even if they aren't literally spelled out. Besides the fact that the factories which produce a number of different things on the same line, one might have the issue that the line was still uh, had in it the residue of whatever was produced beforehand, which might really be non-kosher. And therefore, person have to stay away from other factory factory um, produced things. When it comes to buying milk, and so here we get into the famous uh, discussion about chalavakum, uh, milk which wasn't watched. The halacha is that a person is not allowed to drink goyish milk without a hashkacha. We worry that maybe it's some other animal's milk, not just the kosher animal's milk, and therefore it should be asr. However, there's well known as the hatter of Moshe Feinstein in a shasam chak like this, that there is no milk, and that for whatever reason the person needs milk, to rely on the fact that it's that the dairy producing the milk and who are claiming that it's milk has milk are worried about some kind of so to speak government penalty if they would be found to be lying and therefore he held that there would be a market to rely on it. Now we're much talking about America, there's a lot of discussion about other countries if that same Miritas, that same level of uh, concern is there that the government would interfere and uh, would consider it something criminal if a person would advertise this at camel milk or donkey milk as camel milk. And therefore, the maker of the infrastructure is better to avoid milk or milk products because the, there is a xera against chalavakum. If there's b'yashan satsarech, then there is a head to promotion of Trinayan and based on those postcards, we hold that Europe is similar to America in the sense that they do have some kind of milk board or some, some kind of standard that they would check if the milk being marked as cow's milk actually is cow's milk. Um, that only applies to milk itself. When it, when it comes to other ingredient, other things which are milk-based, it's not just a problem of chalavakum. Then there are real kashrus issues. For example, a lot of cheese isn't just a problem of chalavakum. It's really treif. They're using what's called kavus nevela, or other thing, which means natural rennet to cause the cheese, which is treif. It's possible chalav. Uh, it comes from the lining of the stomach of the calf. And therefore, one can't assume that if it's a heter, even if it's a heter b'shasat chak, but chalavakum, that shasat chak even doesn't apply to other milk products, that would be also completely. But no one's going to starve for three days, even if it happens to be Shabbos. And therefore, between, like we said, fruit and vegetables, which will be mutter, between the eggs, which will be mutter, the fresh fish, which a person can make for himself, mutter, a person would be able to celebrate Shabbos at least to some level. No one's going to go hungry. And... Uh, it may not be the traditional Shabbos, but nevertheless, a person can be Yaitse the Chiyavim of Kiddush, Amaitzi, and even Hatzar of Shabbos with the ingredients which are available, even in a place which is far from a Jewish community and from a good, a good Heksha. One last point to bear in mind, which maybe people in Chutzlar think about, if people come from Mishraim, take for granted, and that is in places like this, there's definitely not going to be an Eruv. And therefore, for sure, a person has to make sure before they carry outside their house, before they go outside their house, they're not carrying anything, if their pockets are empty, because a person's not used to doing that, they tend to forget in Shabbos and Chutzlar, it's when places where there's no Eruv, a person has to be vigilant in that regard.
Right. The last thing, obviously, Nehru Shabbos supplies everywhere. And uh, whatever a person can find, candles, oils, anything which a person wants to use to burn, birthday candles even, are good for Nehru Shabbos. As long as they last long enough that a person can hang off in them, preferably by the Suda, and uh, then they're doing their job to provide covered Shabbos or Enig Shabbos for Shabbos. Just the last point that we go to this, and that is, being as this is something which seems to happen more than once, if a person is planning to travel on a Thursday night or Friday, they should take into account that they might find themselves either stranded or en route in unforeseen circumstances on Shabbos, and therefore at least the minimum uh, Shabbos requirements they should actually take with them, even something as simple as a siddha, which has a Shabbos davening, so that if they would get stuck away from her for Shabbos, at least they have the wherewithal to be able to celebrate Shabbos as best as they can.